we had, like other parts of the world, there's indigenous people in Japan and in, in uh, Sri Lanka and in Africa and in Scandinavia, that these are people that have been pushed aside and, and marginalized. And Canada are saying, we're trying to right a wrong. I'm a Canadian. I live here. My family wasn't here in 1830, but I'm here in 2021. And I can be part of the solution. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Hi, this is Małgorzata Bonikowska, your host, and you're listening to episode 83 of Polcast, recorded and produced by me in Toronto. Polcast is the first ever English language podcast, not only about Poland, but also about Poles around the world and other people related to Poland. This is not a Wikipedia type of podcast. I share with you stories of people with some link to Poland, some connection, sometimes most unexpected, like my favorite polyglot black friend Moses from Cincinnati, who fell in love with our Polish language. Some of my interviewees are famous people and others are not, but each one is special and can serve as inspiration to all of us. For the last few months, Canada has been discussed all over the world. This time, not because of its beautiful nature, its openness to immigrants, progressive law, or polite people. Unfortunately, the uncovering of hundreds of unmarked graves on several residential school grounds brought back horrid stories of the infamous forced assimilation system organized by the government and run by churches residential schools for indigenous children, which existed for 150 years. We Canadians have known, or at least should have known about it since at least 2015, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission finished its six years of meticulous work, collecting reports of over 7,000 indigenous residential school survivors. And when it filed its chilling report, with 94 recommendations, calling the system cultural genocide. Well, somehow, many Canadians knew very little. I have written a lot about the residential schools in Gazeta, of which I'm the editor-in-chief, as well as I talked about it to many television and media outlets in Poland, where there is a lot of interest in this matter, especially after Joanna Gierak-Onoszko published her award-winning book 27 Deaths of Toby Obed. Here in Canada, we have a historian and educator who has been involved in work with indigenous people for over half a century, Zig Mishak, whom I interviewed for podcast five years ago. Few people have such deep knowledge of the history and present situation of First Nations peoples, and so many amazing contacts in that community. Zig Mishak arrived in Canada as a three-year-old World War II baby refugee. Since then, he has been awarded many recognitions, including two medals from the Governor General, and he is an award-winning author of many books and the only curriculum guide on First Nations history and culture used in hundreds of schools. Today, I'm talking to Zig Mishak to dig deeper into the history of and reasons for establishing residential schools. I read in your beautiful um, biography that they wrote about you, this beautiful article that you sent me, that your first address in Brantford was on Manitou Way. And believe it or not, the first two places where I lived after I came to teach in Canada for a year originally, the first one was called Micmac Crescent, and the second one was Apache Trail in a <laughs> tiny little island in North York 
just west of uh, Victoria Park, where you have the places like Cherokee, Pony, Navajo, Nootka, and so on and so on. And you were on Money Two Way, which is quite yeah. amazing. We could probably talk for hours because you're such an incredibly interesting person and so much to say, so many stories. But today we're going to talk mostly about your not only passion for, but also professional, actually, interest in the First Nations, which obviously goes back to your life story when you moved to Brantford. Can you tell us about that? I, I guess in some ways my, my moving to Brantford with my mom and dad goes back to 1916, if you can imagine that. Well, well 1916 is when my father was born. Moving to Brantford, what a coincidence. That was 1950, I was born in 47. Uh, my father was here already working on a farm. My mom and I came over the journey and in, in itself is just a story, you know, like, like a lot of us. Pier 21, the ship almost sunk in the in the Atlantic Ocean and on and on. So now I know why I'm afraid of water. <laughs> when we moved to Branford uh, in the roughest part of the city, I couldn't speak English and I was subjected to all kinds of abuses, you know, uh, the way I looked and, and that too. I couldn't understand then. Why were why were we picked on, even though there, there was a large Polish community here? Why were we picked on uh, as a people then? I mean, being called, um, you know, DP, which which people said dumb Polak, but of course it means displaced person. So what happened because of those abuses in that I isolated myself from from just being involved. I spent time at the forest by the canal and I, I started incrementally, I started to read and then I found out about these people that were close by called Indians. Now here's something else. I couldn't believe this until recently when I started to recall my, my history because I'm writing another five books in addition to the 13 I have now, is that when I crossed the canal, I used to wiggle my way through the factory walls because there was factories on the other side. And several times I ended up over there in a field. So what did I see in the field? I see kids. I see, I, I see kids of all ages, like, you know, I was about nine or so then or seven, and I see kids of all ages, and I see them, they're, they're by the orchard, there's some working on in sort of fields. Well, what I was looking at that building is a residential school. I didn't know this. It's Mohawk Residential the Mohawk Institute or the Mush mm -hmm. Mushal. I didn't know this. So I'm playing, and I remember once I was chased away, which makes sense, but I, my contact was there. That contact unbeknownst to me had had seeded in itself and then when i when i kept um, meeting meeting you know people afterwards or going to the library uh and everything else. so branford introduced me to direct contact with with native kids now i say native kids i mean the term now is actually first nations indigenous not all the kids that were there were from the six nations territory because first nations kids were brought in from all parts of the country in other words distance them as far as you can from their homes so they they couldn't run away now we know a little bit of that uh as, as being a polish descent because uh uh, our children were taken away by both the Germans and the Russians uh, to to be brought up, right? So we, we there's a familiarity. That familiarity between us losing our country for 150 years before the end of the World War One and being occupied again, and then being um, I'm going to say betrayed. I got to call a spade a spade. Uh, given get, handed over to another country and occupied for you know another, another several decades is not that much different than what happened to my friends and allies, the Haudenosaunee, when during the American Revolution, they lost their lands and were forced to move up north of the Great Lakes and the rivers. Not dissimilar. Now go back to moving to Brantford and, and why my interest in First Nations, in particular the Six Nations or Haudenosaunee that they refer to them uh, themselves. I found out that during that World War I period, uh, there was an act of a captain called A.G.E. Smith from the Grand River Six Nations who was down at Niagara on the lake. And Kostushko camp was full of Poles, men, men and women, of course, mainly, mainly men at the time of Polish descent. He was from the Six Nations and son of a gun. He was one of the officers that was training Poles that eventually went over to Europe and he went to Europe with them. After the war, he got the Order of the Black Star for helping people of Polish descent go over there. So indirectly, the Six Nations, indirectly, in a small way, were responsible for Poland uh, achieving its um, independence. But directly, Canada 
was responsible for Paul's, you know, to achieve independence. Because that number of soldiers, you know, coupled with the soldiers that were there already of Polish descent and French and so on, um, became quite an army, you know, to deal with. So that goes back that far. So as I started meeting people over the years, now I've been involved with them, as you know, probably for over half a century. That's hard for me to swallow because then I have to accept my own age. So I became passionately interested in their history and culture. And over the years, I met elders and I met clan mothers. And I, I, I would say right now, if I made a list that most of my friends are from there, I'm so proud of that. I took up the, you know, the torch, I guess, so to speak, because I was, I wanted to learn, you know, learn f- from them and making notes. And then, of course, getting involved with historic reenacting, which I had been for 40 years, meaning as a British soldier during the American Revolution and the War of 1812, I would go to the United States. I spent decades down there. My children were involved. That added because I met a lot of First Nations people there. I could see firsthand the forts and the reasons and and, and then sort of what led to uh, residential schools, I guess, post the War of 1812. Zig, what was the War of 1812? Well, the War of 1812 is when the United States challenged the, the British once again, which is, uh, you know, shortly after the American Revolution, when the colonies had challenged the British there and the British left the United States and kind of moved up to Upper Canada and Lower Canada. And the, and the War of 1812... It's called the War of 1812. It lasted, you know, about two and a half years. Um, and it was the Americans, again, challenging the British by actually attacking them. Uh, they, so they moved across the borders at Detroit uh, into Upper Canada, across the Niagara region. They threatened not only the British uh, uh, territory, but also the Six Nations that were along the Grand. So that was, it was called the War of 1812. Um that ended officially at the end of uh, December 1814, but into January, February, because of uh, a battle that took place in the United States in New Orleans. They got the news late. The territories now were open. The United States had free reign to go out and do whatever they wanted. War was over, and their their enemy now, um, or unwanted ally, uh, were the First Nations people. And one of the solutions to get rid of the territories or maybe take a culture that um, people felt like the government felt was could be amalgamated into um, getting away from their hunting. Uh, and they, they could be, you know, tradespeople, you know, all kinds of things that Europeans would be doing to put them in schools. Can you just like walk us through the history of colonization of what okay. is now known as Canada? But we know the contact was not just. Uh, from mainland Europe, you know, the Vikings were here. We, we estimate about 500 years before Christopher Columbus, you know, rammed his boat on the rock, you know, somewhere the, along the coast. Um, Looking for that, India, interestingly. That's why they were called Indians, right? Yeah, because he was trying to find the route to India. Oh, yeah? and, and his name was Indianos, uh, which, you know, had a different representation. So he said, they're Indianos. Yeah. French called them Sauvage. Sauvage simply meant that compared to Europe, with the palace, the palace of Versailles was was around. I mean, and 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 they're finding people living in in longhouses made out of wood and and uh, naked or partially naked. Uh, how do you refer to people that are the pre-contact? Obviously, you know the discomfort because people are afraid to teach something that is so sensitive, and rightfully so. so I say, well. I said, here's how I deal with them. And I say, in a historic context, I say Indian, because that's the way it was. Everybody, even when I was a kid, cowboys and Indians, uh, historically, Indianos. Um, and I say, well, Aboriginal, personally, I look at, you know, people in, um, in New Zealand and Australia are Aboriginal. Indigenous, okay, that, that works. First Nations, um, yeah, first people. And then I say in the, in the Mohawk language, it's Ongwe Hongwe. The original beings, in that part of the world, it means the original people. So they are the original people here. And and in, in BC, the Nukta and the Haida, Haida are the Ongwehongwe in the Mohawk language there. The safest way is to use indigenous, right? That's the word. Indigenous, indigenous works, uh, First Nations. First Nations does not include uh, Inuit, right? Or Metis. 
it, it, absolutely, and that and that's where that's where the, the policy framework is called First Nation, Métis, and Inuit. The largest population, of course, is a, is a, is the First Nations are defined that way. So I think um, you know I try to get in Métis and Inuit wherever I can. Of course, in my definitions, you know, Métis is is you know depending if you're talking to somebody because it means mixed blood. Métis have a have a unique situation and identified as mixed blood. But you know, in Europe, um, most of us mixed blood of some sort. So, in a way, by definition, we're, we're kind of not Métis. We're mixed blood. The women were the givers. You know, they were the protectors of life. They were the child bearers. They were the ones that when they they, they actually took care of the plants and so on and so forth because they 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 it's Mother Earth. And the men were out there chasing animals and defending. So you could say that socially there was complete equality of the sexes. Yes, like everybody yeah. had their own role, but nobody was was superior. There was there was an absolute sharing and and equality de- depending on a situation. Very quickly, if there was a if there was a pending danger and we and somebody was going to be known to coming in and they're coming in to attack the village, the warriors would be stepping forward, and then there's war chiefs who would be making the decisions. The council were, they were called peace chiefs for a reason because during time of peace they were making decisions, but they were they were given the information from the clan mothers. So there was this contrast. Europeans come in, they're all, they have armor and guns and everything else too. And of course, these people are looking through the bushes and they're seeing these incredible things like they're seeing UFOs, unidentified, maybe not flying objects, but sailing objects, you know, USOs. And, and, and these things, and people are coming off completely like white, bearded, and that. And they, and they, and then, and the First Nations people are lined up along the forest and the women are behind them. Here's how it starts. The women are behind them because why? Because the men are protecting them. So when the Europeans look at them, they say, oh, yeah, the women here are subservient, just like they are in Europe, you know, and here's where it starts. And then, they're, and then of course, look at them. They're naked. They're, they're living in, in this and that. Bad people. Uh, take advantage. Uh, let's find out what there is of value. So they found out fur was valuable. Uh, down south, of course, with the Incas and the Aztecs, they found gold. Up here, there wasn't. There, there was a difference in the sort of advancement north-south on North America, Central and South. And so up here, it's like, what can we find? Tons of trees. Europe was trying to, you know, trees going down. Um, they found out some new foods like squash, uh, corn. So they set up these little villages and, um, you know, on land uh, that, that obviously was occupied by somebody else. They didn't have ownership here. It was occupation. And Europeans, we had already we had forts. And we were already fighting for centuries, right, over over in Europe. They can see this difference coming over. And as time went on, um, you know, wars broke out. Then it was, we'll give them something and say, can we just settle here? And settlement suddenly became an occupation. And then if you had an issue with that, then there would be a war. But because of the fur trade mainly is that the First Nations people were were, they, they were pulled apart and sided. French and Indian War, for example, France was virtually kicked out. Britain uh, became the occupier, and they had a different strategy. French were a little bit more tolerant. Uh, British had, were a little bit more controlling. Um, American Revolution. So the colonies uh, suddenly had an issue with uh, British occupation. Uh, of course, there were wars going on in Europe at the time uh, around the American Revolution. Who was over there? This little guy, Napoleon. Uh, had his own issues, and England and France and that too were fighting. That was brought over here. the uh, The British retreated. I, I don't. They, they weren't defeated. They could have taken over. They could have kept on the con, but they retreated, in my opinion. And I do heavy reenacting with the American Revolution. Right? So twenty years later, just like the war uh, between World War One, World War Two, um, the Americans decided uh, to take a shot at uh, at Britain again up north. More wars in Europe. You know, First Nations during the American Revolution, they had a lot of warriors. They still had influence, diminished around the War of 1812 because already they lands, 20 million acres in and around the Finger Lakes. Uh, they were removed from that, put on little territories that people called reserves. I, I prefer territory. They were fragmented. Well, the Americans, June 18th, declared war. We have the Six Nations sitting on the Grand River. We have the Six Nations on the other side of the... Um, the Niagara River, uh, Seneca, Tuscarora, and that, who are sitting there, they're saying, oh, no, not again. They're like, we didn't want that American Revolutionary War. And now, now look at they're at it once more, and they're asking us to get involved. Not many people know. Throughout the War of 1812, they were meeting 
ill relatives. The wolf clan of the Mohawk nation is related to the wolf clan of the Seneca nation, you know, and, and there's these connections. They were relatives from centuries ago, and they're saying, we can't do this again. So they were trying to negotiate peace. However, the United States at the time had about 7 million population, and the Six Nations, of course, or other First Nations, uh, were forced. Either you're with us, or you're going to be in trouble if you're not. Long and short, um, with with the with the limited number, I mean, there were there were only a few thousand regular British soldiers here, and there were a lot of Americans up here that the Brits didn't know were going to go on their side or not because they came in after the American Revolution and were settlers. They they didn't fight against the the British, which was fortunate. And then of course First Nations involved. But after the War of eighteen twelve, the significance. As um, as people that could direct them to trading uh, beaver trees, and all. it didn't matter. The, the, the settlers were here in great numbers already and had that under control. The re- the relevance as far as warriors didn't matter. After the War of 1812, the Americans practiced what they called the Manifest Destiny. They just steamrolled over into uh, into First Nations territory. They were more violent than the Brits here. Here, Brits made treaties. You know, treaties. You're now going to go live on these little parcels of land. Um, we'll 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 give you this. We'll give you that uh, for giving up this and giving up that. I know here, the parcel that was given to them was about eight hundred and twenty thousand acres. So over two hundred years, the land had. You know, if you have a lawyer and I don't, it's likely I'm going to get screwed. Pardon the language. You know, um, and so that's what happened. Or settlement. You know, uh, I'm going to settle here, and they would give them a bushel of corn every year, like a token thing. Right after that, we don't need them anymore. And around 1830, I think, the first residential school was set up, directed by the government, which has to be made clear. Uh, the American government and the British at the time, um, it was identical, the school system, residential school system. So who do you put that trust into? Well, churches take the Indian out of the child um, means remove their stories of creation, uh, take away their, their medicine bags, cut their hair, take their clothes away, and, and domesticate them in, in the style of a European. The children as young as, you know, I mean, a couple of years old, or the girls were taught domestic uh, chores, and the, the boys were, you know, repairing machinery. So you could say that the fact that they wanted to either use them or that they wanted to get rid of them started much earlier than the residential schools. Yeah, that's that's my sense as a as a historian is seeing that, you know, and, and it makes sense when I look around history around the world too, once something has diminished in, in value, it's like a tool. You have a tool that, that you found useful for a particular project and suddenly it's of no use anymore. You either put it on the shelf you give it away or you shape it into something else. And that that's really what happened was they, they became not an asset any longer. Then, then they became um, a burden. Put them on their piece of land so the rest of it can be occupied at will um, by the dominating, you know, force. Then it was, um, you know, Great Britain. And then you put them on school. So I think there's two things there. Teach them the, the way of the European. The other Part of it was the process was taking place that, uh, like potlatches or their ceremonies out in the West Coast, and even here in the 20s, early 20s, 1921, RCMP came in and took away wampum belts. They say we don't, you're not practicing your ceremonies anymore. So they took it from the little ones, and they and they started fragmenting the elders and separating the elders. Instituted what's called the elected council. Which is which is run and funded by the government, but in the council there's First Nations people, and you know there was funding. So it says if you want funding, then then here's our rules. You follow our rules. So between the residential schools and fragmenting the elders, what's in between over time? Culture becomes assimilated. Uh, so you know people say it's um, cultural genocide. Suddenly, it looks like the whole country is waking up today yeah but the 94 recommendations of the commission were published in 2015 there was an apology from prime minister harper it's not like we have not known so my question uh, to you as a writer and educator is how much of that was 
taught throughout the years? Very little. Recently, I know this from educators screaming, hurry up with that guide of yours. Like, we want that. We want uh, you know, books because there's nothing out there that, that's advised. See, a lot of it's American. Yeah, it's not relevant in, in, in much detail, you know, the Canadian song. But overall, in the system, is what you do is you say, oh, uh, American Revolution, this happened, War of 1812, they were allies, and suddenly that was over, and we la dee through the 19th century. There were soldiers during World War One. there were soldiers during World War Two, and I have them, because I'm writing a book on Remembrance Day, on, you know, on Remember to Remember, because I think we're forgetting. So you don't talk much about, oh, they had a creation story. Were they sacrificing, like we see the Aztecs and the Incas, and they used to, you know, take the hearts out of people. They didn't do that here. So you don't acknowledge the fact that they had a creator, that they were kind and appreciative, that when they downed a deer, that they prayed and so on. You don't give them credit for having families. You don't give them credit for having a governance. Benjamin Franklin wrote a book, acknowledged the Haudenosaunee, the Constitution of the United States, elements were taken out. So do you acknowledge that, the Constitution of the United States? Do you make that public? The people that we jumped on, the people that we displaced, the people that we killed, you say, these are these wonderful, good people. No, you demonize them. They're running around a wagon train. They're scalping people and, and everything else, do all that kind of stuff through movies. And here's the other side. When you take um, 150 years of removing the, that, that oral history, suddenly these kids that are in the residential schools, there's no elder that's talking to them about the stories that went on for millennia, two millennia. No, it's broken. So where are the stories? Where are these stories about how our system was functioning, our clans, the 150 years? They lost their own history and culture. The elders uh, who hung on after that displacement and taking away the music and the, and the wampum belts and all that kind of stuff, they were suddenly dying and they weren't able to connect with the children. Now, of course, we know they've, they've gone into the post-secondary school education system. They have lawyers. They have, you know, it, you can see that. I see that. I've seen it in my lifetime. I've seen educators. I've seen they're trying to get the, the, the handle on their own stuff. For 150 years, if we didn't hold on to something, if we didn't have our little boxes of information, uh, somebody could say, here, have, have, have your country back. What? What do we do with it? What do we know about it? You know? But it's similar uh, that way. And that's why I say in my own mind, my own heritage, my own background allows me to understand better what's what's going on here. And then being able to be, a, you know, a non-native voice. I say I speak about, but not for. So now what I found over, over my half century is that unbeknownst to me, the elders that I've been speaking to that are gone, uh, the oral history that I've listened to, and then looking at all the books and everything else putting it out in a way that I understand it, it seems to be accepted by people, uh, First Nations and non, especially First Nations, which is a, to me is an incredible comfort, and I'll tell you, an incredible responsibility. It's not just the children, it's the mums and dads that lost their children, you know, and, and, it's, and it's a culture as a whole. Very much the same that I've been an advocate for veterans, a Polish veterans, war veterans. It wasn't just the soldiers that were out there and, and the nurses. It was the it was the people that were back home. In our case, the war was right in our backyard. And their case too. But it's the survivors as well. You know, that's important. I I, I want to bring that together. It's not just the children. The children, of course, is tragic, right, with that, but it's the mums and dads that never got the children back, we have to remember. Right. But why now? Why do we talk about communities in 2021 that don't have drinking water, where the conditions on the reserves are really horrifying, the, the living conditions, housing, and so on and so on. There's very high suicide rate among young people. Why? Why is it still going on, tell me, Zig? It stuns me. The why is I wish maybe, maybe I shouldn't because I'd probably get violent. Uh, if I was a fly on the wall in uh, somewhere in the in the political system, hear the conversations that take place and priorities. I believe there, there's a responsibility by everybody collectively, the right hand and the left hand, you know, coming together and hoping and doing. And I and I think that the politics uh, has created walls and barriers. I think there's a there's a mistrust uh, from both sides on funding and how it's to be used. 
I think the fragmentation from the First Nation, Métis, and Inuit, I think now, clearly, people spoke, and they, they, they've risen, and they've spoken, and they said, not only uh, are we looking at our children and accountability, but that accountability then has all these little prongs coming down, like we say, the water, you know, the health, the accommodations, the education, and so on. Then, of course, there's people that say, too, so we have treaties. Why do they get free education? Why do they get this, this and that? Well, look, when you've lost your home, you know, 20 million acres, and you have 42,000 acres left, you know, from 20 million, don't you think that there's an accountability of some sort? They pay into the system as well. I think there's a misconception that way as well. You know, people that don't live on the Six Nations territory but have the card and all that kind of stuff, they they, they still pay their taxes when they're teaching outside the, the, the reserve. It's politics. I'd love to have somebody sit and answer that question. First Nations have more more say now, but it's been a huge battle. If you joined the army, you were disenfranchised. There's a story of a guy that joined the joined the army in World War One, First Nations. He came back and they told him, "You can't go back to your to your reserve and your territory. Why? Because you joined the Canadian Army, you know." And and so on. Say, wait a minute! I just fought for us. Uh, you didn't read the fine print, you know. And, and there you go. And he went to the United Nations. You know, this guy made a plea here on the Six Nations. Um, my Don my, my Montour, I call him Elder. You know, um, his his mother actually died at the age of 106, and she was uh, she had to go to the United States to become a nurse and go to go to uh, go overseas. Canadian government wouldn't allow her to become a nurse because she was in First Nations here. Edith Montour, 1917, she wanted to join the Canadian Army as a nurse because of our Indian Act and so on. She had to go to the United States. So she went there, she got medals, came back, became a teacher. You see, that, that, that with her. So I, I know firsthand, again, from somebody like, you know, grand, grandfather, they're telling, telling stories about a wagon coming across the bridge here to Brantford with his father, and they were turned back because there were too many Indians in, in Brantford. And so it seems to me that, that more more people are listening to them and their rights are being respected more. But by the time that wheel, you know, that big stone is, is stopped from rolling down the hill, by the time you stop it, you start pushing it back up. That gap in between is where still a lot of unfinished things or things that are wrong um, are going to stagnate and fall through the cracks. But that water issue boggles my mind. Yeah, in the country that has the largest amount of water. We're selling it off to the United States. Nestle's are, are tapping into artesian wells for for like a, a fraction of a cent and turning around and selling it to us for 100 million percent increases. So is education also a, a, a key to all this, you think? Huge. Absolutely huge. I see this. Uh, they have educators. I know uh, First Nations educators there. They actually have non-First Nations educators. Obviously, they want to get their own people in, right? It makes sense. But they also see the value, and they're not uh, most of uh, them. They don't object when you get a qualified person coming in that's going to help be part of the solution. My family wasn't here uh, in 1830. I don't see a Misiac, uh, you know, that shows up in the history books. I said, but I'm here in 2021, and I can be part of the solution. That's going to help us get through this, you know, not, not the polarization, anger, burning churches. I have a difficult time with that, but I can understand it. But do you think, do you think there should be generally a lot more education? Because we talked about internally, right, like within the indigenous communities. But how much do people know how much is taught at school? In 2009, the policy framework came out. Now there is an absolute unequivocal movement to the inclusion of First Nation Métis and what content in every teachable subject. It's there. The government has mandated that. They're not going to turn away from it. Heavy commitment by the government inclusion into the education system because we're going to be teaching young people and generations to come, I believe, the real story with input from First Nation Métis and Inuit and people, I'm going to say in a small way myself, that have have a, a, a view, another view as well, you know, to assist uh, with that. And that's going to be our healing. And that, that's going to be making things right. 
proud to be a Canadian that we we are a country that can still look forward that way. This is part of that greatness, you know, that we're going to link arm in arm and help those that are trying to help themselves. It's like we'd be dealing with a friend or somebody that's been, you know, suffering from an ailment. And uh, so they are our friends, they've been our allies, they've been our neighbors for centuries. And we'll simply lock arms with them and we'll help them, you know, calling out to us to help them. And uh, we can't drop that ball because in turn, they're going to help us. And we're going to be better, much better understanding who these people were and who were almost eliminated from the planet. Um, much better understanding and saying thank you, you know, that it didn't happen. And that's that part of reconciliation and then moving together. Do you think we'll ever still have a normal, happy, celebratory Canada Day? Our Canada Day, I I don't think should change. Don't forget we have Aboriginal Month or Indigenous Month, and we were recognized we an entire month. And I know schools jump up and down on that, all kinds of activity. So we shouldn't take a month and then then kick out say a Canada Day. So we're, so celebrating what? Um, no, we're not celebrating uh, the fact that residential schools were were created. We're not celebrating the uh, suppression of a culture. We're not celebrating bad things. We're acknowledging the fact that we live in this country, but now it should be an inclusion. That we live in, that those that are, those of us that are Canadian, like me, look at this and say, my goodness, look what it did to my family. It, it brought my family to this country and gave me the opportunity, my children and grandchildren. I can't deny that. But I'm also one who has said before, so I'm not jumping on the bandwagon. I'm saying we also have to acknowledge the First Nation, Métis, and Inuit um, people here because that's way, what we are. We're a combination and a collection of that. Now, we're not, you know, Quebec, I suppose, in a sense, we should celebrate the fact that Quebec um, has a, a distinct uh, history and they have their language and so on. And we, we're bilingual. I mean, that's phenomenal embracing all the countries, all the people from other parts of the world and showing them and demonstrating to them that, look, we had, like other parts of the world, there's indigenous people in Japan and in in uh, Sri Lanka and in Africa and in Scandinavia, that these are people that have been pushed aside and, and marginalized. And Canada are saying, we're trying to right a wrong, and uh, and we should move forward that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, 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 I'm a Canadian. I live here, but I love my friends and neighbors and allies, in particular the Haudenosaunee, and I love other nationalities. And So far, Zig, you have devoted a big part of your life to actually writing about it and teaching can you talk about these books can you talk about this this guide of, yeah. about your your work in promoting this whole thing because it wasn't that well known for a while back absolutely coincidence you know i'll tell you my friend ray sky and i were in toronto at some presentation i can't remember but we were walking through a building and we heard something about First Nation Métis Inuit education policy framework. We both put the brakes on, looked through a door and saw a whole bunch of people up there uh, looking at somebody on the podium. But what it was, was somebody from the ministry announcing to the schools that it was going to be mandated that that across the, uh, you know, what do you call it, C to C to C, that it was it was going to be mandated over time that it was uh, that, that in the school curriculum, uh, every teachable subject, History and geography is a given, but, you know, art. So we, we took a, a, a sample of this 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 thing that they were talking about. And on the way home, Ray was reading it. And I said, holy smokes, you know, Ray, I said, you know, here's an opportunity uh, to take what we have, like your writings and your art, all of these things blend it. Me, you, native, non-native. I said, we're going to do this. So it took a couple of months. Finally, we put this thing together. This was when? This was in 2009, uh, 12 years ago. And uh, it was said, so what we're going to do is we're going to do this for our school boards because we're right next door to the Six Nations. And, and I knew people on both boards. So we went to the boards. My friend saw the value of it. And and uh, and so both boards bought into it and, and they, they used it as a tool as people on the, on the Six Nations territory. They looked at it as well and said, you know, there's so much interesting stuff in here that it was the first guide of its sort. Uh, in Canada. 
well, of course, being an independent and, you know, not the big player, I had an advantage by one phone call at a time to reach 723 schools, school boards, individual people, First Nations communities, about 24, I guess, uh, First Nations communities uh, heard of the guide and they ordered it up, including a few down in the United States and so on. So it was it was that was the writing. And then then coupled with that and having having gone to schools to mentor the teachers going in class and speaking to students, whether it's elementary or post-secondary school, uh, I had this excitement in me and be able to, to demonstrate this at the same time I, I heard teachers are saying we don't have other books that we can trust. So I said, well, I'll think on that so my experiences are, yeah, <laughs> exactly so as a reenactor in 2009 I was already the chairman of the war of 1812 200th anniversary that was coming up in 2012 I was sitting on PBS's advisory board uh, because they wanted me to give them some advice on First Nations involvement so what did I do my first book second book actually was war of 1812 highlighting native nations and it became one of the two books that the ministry in Ontario had recommended as being what they had endorsed. So I started writing books. Um, the biography of Jay Silverheels, um, baby boomers know that he was the Tonto, the original Tonto. I met him when I was 10 at a parade. I know family on the Six Nations. And his family said, if anybody can write that book, you can. From from the Lone Ranger series going back, like Baby Boomers in particular, and, and the Lone Ranger series in late 1950s, early 1960s. And so anyway, I wrote that, and then I started to write, I wrote Wampum, the story of Shailen the Clam, to introduce people to Wampum, which was really relevant because it's oral as opposed to written. Wampum are, are made out of shells. It's called the Guahog shell. So the, the First Nations people found these uh, pre-contact and they, they broke them. And, and the process was amazing. You know, they had to polish them. They had to make them uh, cylindrical. Then they had to drill a doggone hole in the center without modern tools. Blows me away when I think about that. They made these um, belts, like they strung them together uh, vertically so you might get a, a vertical you know say about eight inches high you, you know they were approximately three quarters of an inch or half an inch tall so they would be uh, equal equal lengths they would um, make vertical strings and they would sew them together so you had your vertical string into a horizontal string and they would create patterns on there so between them they, they negotiated treaties, they negotiated um, agreements on land, they nego you know, and sometimes just the string, just the vertical portion was called, was called a wampum string, and, and, the, and runners would carry those, like a little message. So they were told, for example, um, you know, go to this particular village, deliver this message that we're going to have a meeting of, say, the council. You know, all the nations would come together. So they became equivalent, I guess, to money in a sense, uh, where people say, no, wampum were, was money. No, it wasn't. To Europeans, it was, it was a, say, a currency in a sense. But to First Nations people, it was a valuable item. And now I'm writing, I'm, I finished six of nine. I'm writing about the clans. There's nine clans in the Haudenosaunee, or Six Nations, uh, you know, culture. And I'm writing in uh, sort of stories. I'm finishing th the last three of nine, and they're going to be part of my revised Native Studies Guide. It's likely going to be a First Nations collection about 10 days ago. Uh, again, I was asked by my friends in the Six Nations because I collaborated on it with, uh, with Ray Skye. And he said, you know, the timing. And I said, Ray, it's an incredible amount of work because I have to revisit the curriculum expectations. I mean, it's a, and you know, you know, you're, you're a writer and you, you it's, it's unbelievable. So I've solicited uh, two people, um, one being my daughter who recently graduated uh, as a teacher. So I'm going through that process. I have an image of after a certain battle in the War of 1812, uh, it's called They Mourn. I, I drew this for my book and I wrote this uh, 10 years ago. It still resonates. I send it to a teacher and, and said, when did you write this? Today? I said, no, 10 years ago. I'm going to read this to you briefly. After the Battle of Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, a.k.a. Six Nations, Iroquois decided to never fight against each other again during the last months of War of 1812. In fact, to this very day, they, didn't, they have not raised the hatchet against uh, each other. 
However, the tragedy is that the War of 1812 became the end of the beginning. No longer were they, nor other First Nation Métis, anyway, valuable as a military force. They were not even needed in trade, and in fact, were cast aside, and their only value was a small remnants of land they continued to occupy. This land was soon to change ownership by a variety of suspicious, devious means, as well as open warfare. The Indian problem and open comments in Canadian Parliament, such as, kill the Indian, save the man, or kill the Indian and the child, became cutting words morphing into actions as mandated as mandates related uh, to assimilation. Both Canada and coincidentally the United States followed parallel paths. Not a great consolation, but it, but it has to be stated that all out war was not a path that Canada followed, unlike the United States. And I give an example, Custer's last stand when he went into attack. While the federal residential school system began around 1883, it actually began earlier. The origins of the residential school system can be traced to as early as 1830, long before Confederation 1867, when the Anglican Church established a residential school in Brantford. Children as young as five years old were brought into the system. Take a look at, uh, at a kindergarten class in your own school and imagine the process. You, as a child, are picked up by a car or truck, and as you look back, you see your parents and or your siblings waving goodbye to you. You are alone with strangers. You have no idea where you're going and how long it will take to get there. You may not even understand the English language and what is being said to you. You arrive in the grounds of a building and you see children as young as you and older working in fields. Upon entering the building, you are spoken to by adults and the process of removing your ancestral tradition begins. Your hair is cut. Your medicine bag around your neck is removed. As other such things, you're given a uniform after your own clothes are taken away. You are forbidden to speak your mother tongue, directed to bed in a large room, and then guided to follow a strict set of rules that you will be expected to live with for the next 10 years. If the first peoples of this part of the world could be absorbed into the society of the conquering people, then eventually the small parcels of land they occupy would disappear as would they. They, as well as all future newcomers to Canada, would be reading about themselves in history books. Even though potlatches and longhouses and other such structures were raided and banned in order to silence the elders, breaking any continuity of passing along their history, their culture, onto future generations, including having no right to vote or even hire an independent lawyer or losing their native rights if they join the army or somehow manage to pursue post-secondary education, the ambers burnt low, but they did not extinguish. Years went on, and the system flourished, but in the mid-20th century, they began to change. What once seemed to be the beginning of the end had now showed signs of a new beginning. First Nation, Métis, and Inuit were using the system to their advantage. They were producing an ever-increasing number of lawyers and doctors and teachers and other professional people, including trades and much more. They were able to access and review and question past documents. They were able to determine what and how lands were taken from them under what legal agreements. Accountability was upon us. And over the past 50 years, I've seen and heard much of this firsthand. As a newcomer, World War II baby refugee to Canada, 1950, I fell in love with the history and culture of the Haudenosaunee. And as years went by, and my research intensified, coupled with conversations with many elders, I was formulating a strong, authentic, and solid commentary myself. I could write a standalone book about my years with the Haudenosaunee, and in fact, in a more effective way, I did, in collaboration with my friend Ray Skye and many others, creating the Six Nations Iroquois Program Teacher's Guide. We chose to show you who the Haudenosaunee were and are. In fact, we will show you who other First Nations, Métis, and Inuit were and are by starting with the Haudenosaunee stories of creation, the formation of the clans, and the coming of the peacemaker and the establishment of the great law. We will gently and clearly guide you through the process of learning, understanding, making sure that you become proficient and comfortable teaching your students and accomplishing all your curriculum mandated expectations, in fact, exceeding them. It's a beautiful, beautiful summary of what we have been talking about. Well, <laughs> miigwech. 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 Yahweh is in Mohawk. Thank you. Until we see you meet, meet again, you know, Yahweh. To learn more about Zygmishak and his work, 
please visit our podcast website at mypodcast.com. I also encourage you to listen to my previous interview with Zig in episode 5 and to read the story that goes with it, Zig Mishak, Polish Roots and First Nations Passion. Let me also tell you about a daily service that Polcast offers to those of you who are Facebook users. I track everything written about Poland in English, online articles published in many countries by many media outlets. Of course, only those that are reliable, no fake news here. I encourage you to visit our Polcast Facebook page every day. You can find lots of interesting stories there, and you will be able to see what's written about Poland around the world. Podcast and I would love your financial support, hence the crowdfunding campaign. Thank you to those who are already supporting and helping Podcast. Like all other podcasts, this one also depends on its listeners. What is free for you to listen to is not free to make. You have to pay for the server, MailChimp to send newsletters, for the equipment, and last but not least, all the work that goes into producing it. Would you take me out for a coffee or a donut once a month, or maybe for lunch? If you would, but you cannot because we are too far apart, please support Polcast with the equivalent of that. Go to mypolcast.com support and make a pledge. I will be very, very grateful. For a lot of additional information, multimedia links, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions, and you can also suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that I could cover on podcast, please let me know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app.